influence and prestige and, and power. You've got to focus on yourself. You've got to be number one in this world. But Jesus comes along and he says that true greatness is shown not by how many serve you, but how many you serve. And you guys, you want to know how it is that you can be great? Then you need to be the least. And so Jesus here begins to talk to them about those things. As we read again in verse 36 of Mark chapter 9, that Jesus took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so let's pray before we continue on. Father, we ask that as this morning, as we've been drawn close to you in, in worship and praise, enter into your presence. We know that you're here. Lord, that you desire to teach us now. And I pray that our hearts would be teachable. There's very important principle in how it is that we can be great in, in the best sense of the word, in, in eternity's values and views. And Lord, I ask that you would just press our hearts and minister to us and the, all of us here in this room and whoever else is listening out in the coffee shop. But Lord that, that Lord, that we would be ones that desire that we do want to be great. And Lord, that you would encourage us and instruct us in that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus is in a house in Capernaum. And you might recall that as we discussed Capernaum, it was kind of Jesus' earthly headquarters, if you would. In other words, he spent more time in that little village of Capernaum than any other place. And it could be that as he is in the house, and some scholars have suggested that he's at Peter's house. Whenever you see that phrase, in the house, it speaks of Peter's home. And, and so perhaps it is that some, as they reason that and they suspect that, that here he is in Peter's house, as he takes a little child in the midst of his arms that maybe it could be that this is Peter's son. We don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic about it, but he does take this, this child in his arms and he's illustrating this lesson of greatness. And it really is a beautiful scene when you think about it, setting that child, whoever he or she was, and holding him in his arms. And he says to his disciples, now true greatness is modeled by this. And I think that Jesus here in the rest of chapter 9 gives us and brings out to us four real marks of greatness. So we're going to see here and discuss four principles of greatness in God's kingdom, how you and I can become great in the kingdom of God. So as we have read verses 36 and 37, the first mark of greatness in God's eyes are found here in these texts. Jesus helping his disciples on how they can be successful, how they can be great. Jesus didn't say, hey, you dummies, I'm the one that's the greatest. Of course, Jesus, here he is, God in, in, in human flesh. But Jesus didn't put the focus back on himself. But he says, if you desire to be first, then you must be the servant of all. You want to be great, then receive a child in my name. You embrace them. Now, those of you who have kids or you work with kids or perhaps you have nieces and nephews and you've been around children, we know that children can be very demanding. They do take tending and caring and, and feeding them and clothing them. It takes a lot of work. It really is amazing how children 
can cause you to expend a lot of energy, at the end of the day, you are worn out. But in the world's eyes, as if you want to get ahead according to the world, you don't look for a child to advance your career, do you? You don't look for a, a child to enhance your prestige or to give you prominence. A child doesn't usually give us those things, but rather it's the other way around. They need things. And I believe that Jesus is talking about more than just being nice to children. He is saying if you truly want to be great, then you embrace and you love and you receive those who perhaps are just ordinary people. Maybe poor people or people who have no influence. They don't have a name. They don't have the prestige. They're not wealthy. Any of those things. But what you do is you are to welcome those who need to be served. And as you do that in my name, then you are showing the first true mark of greatness. And that is that you do this. This is the key. You, You receive those who cannot advance you a bit. They cannot advance your career. You receive those who don't have that name that everybody knows. We live in a society where we kind of like to drop names, don't we? We we love to impress people. Hey, I was talking to so-and-so. Oh, really? They're well-known in the community. Wow, they're kind of famous. They're a person of of reputation and prestige and prominence. And Well, yeah, I was was talking to them the other day. And the pastors can kind of do that. You know, well, so-and-so comes to my church, really? Yeah, you know, this leader or this prominent person or whatever it might be. So we kind of like to drop names and and do things like that. Well, if I was to say, you know, I was talking to, to, and maybe trying to impress somebody. Yeah, I was talking to Billy, the little kid down the street the other day. What? what? You know, Billy, the little kid with the runny nose down the street. (laughs) It's not really going to impress anybody, is it? Kids don't do that for us. And Jesus says, this is important. And this is the fundamental truth to greatness. You receive those, even the one who cannot help you, cannot advance you, prosper you, the people who can do nothing for you. If you truly desire to get ahead, then you receive them in my name. Well, when they heard that, whoever sees one of these little children, I, I believe that it speaks more of just a child physically, but a child economically, socially, spiritually, just receiving anyone who is a little one, one who is less. You just receive them in the name of Jesus. And then John, he says, speaking of your name, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. So John and the other disciples were watching somebody casting out demons And so John responds. He says, Teacher, we saw somebody. You might recall that earlier in the chapter, the disciples had failed to cast out this demon as they came down from the mountain. And they now saw this one who was casting out demons, and we told them to stop because they're not a part of us. They don't walk with us. They don't follow after us. And it can be such human nature to react in this way. When someone is achieving something or some ministry, we'd never heard of them before, and the reaction that we can have towards them can be a little bit on the negative side. 
I think that John and the rest of the disciples perhaps were maybe troubled by the success of this individual. And what appalled them was this man was actually successful in casting out demons, but he doesn't walk with us. He's not a part of our group here. He, he, he's not a part of, of what we're doing. And it wasn't a phony ministry that this man had. It, it was not fake. Jesus said, leave him alone. If this man is casting out demons in my name, obviously there's faith in his heart. There's, there's truth that is in him. You don't reject people because they don't think exactly like you do or I do or do ministry exactly like we do. I pray and hope that we here at Calvary Chapel, that we never think that we have the corner on ministry. Now, I love the ministry and the philosophy of ministry of Calvary Chapel. That's why I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. I am so thankful for Calvary Chapel, the emphasis of the teaching of the Word of God, and just simply just relying on the Lord and His Holy Spirit and, and doing ministry in a way where people are hearing the gospel and growing in the scriptures and being discipled. I love the philosophy of ministry of Calvary Chapel. But we don't have the corner on ministry, do we? And I hope and pray that me or, or us, we don't have the, the mindset and attitude that everybody else is out to lunch because they don't go to our church. We do not reject other Christians because they may not know as much as we do theologically or worship the same manner. But we are to be gracious in receiving others who minister in the name of Jesus. Those who are not against a biblical Jesus, those who stand on truth, they are still for him. And I think that it is sad when we see Christians rejecting other brothers and sisters because of differences that really should not divide us at all. They're really kind of petty and, and, and non-issues because maybe outward appearance, maybe because of worship style, whatever it might be. Back in the Jesus movement, back in the 60s, when Pastor Chuck Smith began to minister to the hippies, many churches had turned their backs on the young people who had come to them. They didn't like the way that they were dressed. They didn't like the fact that they had bare feet and they wore beads, that they had long hair. And many of the church people were saying, we don't want this kind among us. And what happened was is they missed out on the blessing of opening up their lives to them. And Pastor Chuck and Kay, they did open up their lives to them and began to minister to them and give them truth and began to teach them the Word of God. And that's where the whole Jesus movement came out of. And many of those who came out of that movement who were saved, whose lives were wrecked, and, and whose lives were, were marked by just homelessness and, and drugs and immorality, getting saved, learning the Word of God, some of those have now ministries that impact the whole world. Some of them you're hearing on Grace FM radio. Greg Laurie and Raul Reese and others like them that have a wonderful testimony because one man, Pastor Chuck Smith, ministered to them and received them that others were rejecting. And we can see the same thing today if we're not careful that we can push away our young people because they don't dress like we like or they don't like the music that, that we like or whatever it may be. And I pray that we don't miss out because they are facing temptations and, and factors that we never dreamed of. And I pray that we would be a fellowship that we receive them and we bless them and we support them. 
My wife, Sue, got a, a note from her aunt uh, last month who was writing one of the kids, uh, sending a birthday card, but she, she always very good about writing a letter and updating us. And Sue was telling me that her aunt and uncle, who were in their 80s, they were talking about going to a church service that the young people were you know doing the service and they said you know we're not really used to their music or we didn't grow up with that music but we want to go there because we want to support them and we want to love these kids and i thought that is so wonderful and that's my prayer for us is that we would have that kind of mindset as well the other side of the spectrum is those of you who are young I pray that you wouldn't miss out on what the older, the more mature, have to offer as well. As the scripture says that we're to honor them, their experience, how they support and how they're able to pray and how they they serve in the church as well. That we would be ones that we would receive one another. That you may not have the same gift as this other person and just because you're not teaching the youth and you're the one that's mowing the lawns or cleaning the church that that ministry that that person does is just as important as the ministry that you have been called to do in teaching the youth. So receiving one another and caring for one another and and over the years I've been privileged to, to have friends and to minister with those who perhaps aren't a part of Calvary Chapel. And it has been a blessing. It's really opened up my eyes to where I realize the kingdom of God is more than just this fellowship. It's an important part, this fellowship, yes. But there are those in this community that I've had privilege to, to minister alongside and sit on boards and sue as well, that some of them, they wear the coat and the ties, and they would never dream of having a drum set in their church. The other side is, I know those who are the jeans and t-shirts and the music that, you know, I don't really care for. But they're ministering and they're giving truth and they're, they're doing what their conviction is and reaching those who God has told them to reach. And that we would be receiving those. That perhaps that we don't have a natural tendency to gravitate to or want to reach out to. And understand that God loves them and they belong to him and we'll receive them in Jesus' name and rejoice that Christ is being preached. What Jesus is simply telling us is the mark of greatness is that you look not on the person's outward appearance or just characteristics they manifest or they think like I do, but we see an individual who is loving and serving the Lord, who is standing on the name of Jesus Christ, not denying him and standing on his truth. We don't forbid him or her. Don't quench quench that work. So that's the first mark of greatness, just receiving others in the name of Christ. The second mark for you note-takers of greatness we find in verses 41 and 42. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, as surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and be and were thrown into the sea. Remember that Jesus is speaking these words with his arms still around this little child. Jesus is talking about receiving a child and ministering to a child. Jesus comes back and says, Whoever shall offend one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better that a millstone were hung around their neck and they'd be cast into the sea. As he's saying this, the Sea of Galilee is right there on the shores of Capernaum. 
And I love the heart of Jesus, gentle and meek and, and mild, talking about the little ones, tells of serious consequences to those who stumble little ones who believe in him. When we go to Israel next month, those of you who go with us, we will see one of these millstones there in Capernaum when we walk through the ruins of Capernaum. They've excavated some of them there. And I just wonder, you know, if one of those millstones that they excavated was the one that Jesus was pointing to there in Capernaum. I, I, perhaps he's looking out the doorway and he's saying that it'd be better that that millstone be hung around their neck and cast into the sea than to stumble one of these little ones. A millstone is just a round stone. It's about three feet high on average. And, and it was made of lava rock and it has a hole in the middle. It's like a donut, but very, very heavy. And if it was you know, tied to your neck and you were cast into the sea, you would go down very, very quickly. How evil it is to plant doubt in the heart of a child. And how easy it is to destroy the faith, that beautiful faith that children have. And again, over the years, I have learned to appreciate the faith of children. I love to talk to children about the Word. That's one of the things I enjoy about Vacation Bible School is I enjoy teaching the kids. It's an opportunity for me to do that at that time. But the simplicity of faith that they have in God, the beauty of their faith, it's a wonderful thing. And it's a twisted mind that would try to destroy the beautiful faith of a child. And here Jesus gives this serious warning about those who would destroy the faith of one of these little ones who trust in me. And again, I think that Jesus is talking more about just someone who's a child chronologically, but the little ones, people in our society who are counted as perhaps not being important or prominent according to our standards. Jesus says, don't offend them, don't stumble them, handle people with sensitivity. So the first mark of greatness is to receive others in Jesus' name. Secondly, be sensitive to others. And of course, Paul the Apostle, he would talk about this concept, and I think it's worth reminding us, uh, us of this. When he was writing to the Romans and to the Corinthian church, when he was talking about and writing to them about meat that was offered to idols, Paul writes, don't you know that meat offered to idols won't affect the meat, that you can eat it if your faith is strong, but others that may come over to your house that you invite to have some burgers or some ribs or whatever it might be, and they know that the meat that you're serving is probably offered to idols, don't put that kind of meat out there if it stumbles them, one whose faith is weaker, the little ones. And as I have observed... A mark of a mature Christian, a truly mature Christian, they are people who do not flaunt their liberty. But they are always dealing with others in sensitivity and out of love. Paul pointed out, don't let our liberty cause others around us to stumble. And truly mature men and women of God have chosen to observe and notice that, hey, there are little ones around. And I am not going to flaunt or exercise my liberty and cause one of these little ones to stumble. Even though I might have liberty or the faith, not have a problem with this or that. Jesus here, talking about greatness, here is another key. 
Deal with others with great sensitivity, lest you stumble them, offend them. So receive others. Embrace others in my name. Secondly, you minister to others in sensitivity. And then thirdly, for you note-takers, you deal with yourself radically, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life, main, rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So the third mark of greatness is dealing with yourself. That is, if your hand offends you, then cut it off. Your foot, your, your eye offends you, you know, cut it off, pluck it out. If something is causing you to be slowed down in your walk or hindered in your walk, then get rid of it. Now, Jesus is not talking about, listen, he's not talking about getting a ballpoint pen and plucking out your eyeball, all right? He's not talking about bodily mutilation. The flesh profits nothing, Jesus said. It's the Spirit that gives life. And sin isn't just about cutting off limbs and organs. It's about circumcision of the heart, is what the Scripture says. And if there are things that are causing you to stumble or be affected in a negative way, then get rid of that thing. Now again, what Jesus is teaching us is completely different than what the world teaches us. You see, what I mean by that is the world oftentimes we will look at others and we live in a society where we love to look and find fault with others and criticize others and critique others and find fault with them and say, hey, you fall short here and you're not this and you're not that. But when it comes to ourselves, hey, so I messed up. Quit judging me. Quit being so hard on me. Nobody's perfect. That's the way that our mindset is. And that's the way we think in our society. And when it comes to others, we like to really deal with them harshly. But when it comes to ourselves, we love to deal with ourselves graciously. And what Jesus is telling us here in the scriptures is you need to reverse that thinking if you want to be great in the kingdom, what you're to do then is deal with others graciously, with sensitivity, deal with yourself seriously, radically. So Jesus, we see, was trying to correct a big misunderstanding by the disciples. They were thinking of the kingdom mainly in terms of reward, not in terms of sacrifice. So this morning, with your hearts being open to the Lord, is there anything that is in your life that is causing offense. And it's a loving Father through His Word that is telling you, then cut it out. If you truly want to be great, if any of us have an infected arm, there's gangrene and it's threatening you know, our very lives, the doctor comes along and says it has to be amputated, that arm, to save your life, because your life is at stake. And Jesus is using this very dramatic analogy to tell us how serious it is when we're involved with wrongful, hurtful, sinful attitudes and actions and what we must do about it. 
deal with it drastically. And the word that Jesus uses here for hell is Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a valley right next to the city wall of Jerusalem, right next to where the temple was. And in the valley of Gehenna, as you read the book of Isaiah, as you read the book of Jeremiah, it was a valley that actually the children of Israel in their idol worship were sacrificing their children on the arms of Moloch in that very valley. It would also end up being a garbage dump for Jerusalem. They would burn garbage there. It smelled. They would burn the garbage with fire. And Jesus here talking about hell, and by the way, he spoke more about hell more than any other person in the New Testament. It is real. There may be those who are popular, popular speakers that go on the speaking circuit or write books that everybody's buying and reading that say there really is no hell. They're not getting it from the Bible. Because the Bible is very clear that there is hell. Eternal judgment for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. A separation. Lake and fire. And it's for all eternity. It is real. Jesus talked about it. He talked about more than any other person in the New Testament. And understand, when it is applied to an unbeliever, one who rejects and resists the good news of Jesus Christ, and they die as an unbeliever, it means that their whole life is like that, like Gehenna, wasted in a total loss. There's nothing salvageable about it. Maybe they've won the approval of men. Maybe they live lives very comfortably. Maybe they had prestige and power, but the end of their life is wiped out, a total loss, thrown into the garbage heap of eternity. Now, when these words are applied to the believer, as they do here, remember that Jesus is talking about how to be great in the kingdom. And if we go through life and in our lives, and we have things that that cause us to stumble, that, that cause offense, those things in our lives, then some of our life is wasted, squandered, lost. If your foot is causing you offense, cut it off. The foot which can lead you to a pathway of sin. Don't walk towards that temptation. Don't walk into those circumstances or into that compromise or sin. That means you change where you go. Repent, turn direction, and walk towards the Lord. If you have an eye that you're watching things, certain programs, DVDs, pulling up things on the computer that cause you to carnal out, that is sin, expose you to pressures which are too much for you to handle. Don't waste your life in doing those things. Deal with these things radically, drastically, seriously. And not only do they bring somewhat of a a waste and a loss in your life, but it will begin to affect others. One of the things that I know that we've talked about this is that sin destroys, it kills, it brings destruction into the lives of people. It hurts many people. It's not just about you. And the older that I get and the longer that I live and the years that I log on in ministering, the more I see what sin does to people, what it does to their lives individually, what it does to their marriages, what it does to their families, what it does to the church. And there are two things that concern me today. One is the attitude of sin that Christians have. It's becoming more desensitized, apathetic. Well, you know, kind of a carefree mindset. Really, it is. Because in our society, we are seeing that sin is more widely accepted. Things that would have shocked us 30, 40 years ago 
They don't shock us like they did before. Because this world is getting darker and more depraved and more wicked. More immoral. I'm not just talking about our society. I'm talking about the church at large. And understand, I don't say this condemningly. I'm saying this brokenheartedly and just honestly. How many think that it's okay to watch hour after hour after hour? And this applies not only to you, but to me and my family as well, of, of sin that's on TV. It's getting to the point where you can't even watch the commercials. Really, without there being carnal and sensual you know, things and, and, and situations that are there, implications. More and more Christians that think it's okay to live in sin together. It's okay to, to go out partying and drinking and taking drugs. I've even had some that, that think that, you know what, I'm a Christian and they're out selling drugs. Don't even really think about it. Because they're desensitized to it. Everybody else is doing it. Got to make a buck. Want to have some fun. Makes me feel good. The unfortunate thing, the second thing, is there's more and more pastors and ministry leaders that don't really want to deal with this subject at all. There are some there saying they won't even mention the word sin. And Jesus very clearly, very lovingly in his words says, listen, if there is sin, stop. And if there is sin in your life, if there is sin in my life, if there is anything that's causing you as the Lord is talking to you, speaking to your heart this morning, and the where you are walking, the places you're hanging out, the things that you're taking into your mind, it does matter. The activities you're involved, the attitudes that you have that are wrong, he says, cut it out, deal with it, stop and repent. It's a loving father that says, I love you, and I don't want you to be bound up and hurt by this sin. And your life ended up wasting time when I want to bless you. When Jesus died for our sins so we can be free from that junk, from the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives, and the worldly pleasures that you might go after, the fleshly desires, those kinds of things, they will never satisfy you. It's a deception. And it will lead you down a road where you end up, where you feel like you're in a garbage heap and you're going to get burnt. So it's the love of the Father and it's the love of Jesus Christ that says, listen, get rid of it, deal with it. And when you live long enough and spend any amount of time walking with the Lord and ministering to others, you really begin you really begin to hate what sin does because of the waste and destruction and harm that it causes to any of us. It just brings sorrow and defeat and death. So if there's sin in your life, get rid of it because it will bring destruction to you and to those that you love. Quickly, finally, fourthly, the fourth mark of greatness is found in the final two verses of this chapter, verse 49. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice 
will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So the fourth mark of true greatness, according to Jesus, have salt in yourself, have peace with one another. Now in the Middle East in Jesus' day, when you made an agreement, oftentimes you salted it. It was called the salt of agreement, the salt of the covenant. You put salt on bread and you broke the bread and you shared the bread. And of course, sharing the meal, as we've discussed, was a oneness. It was a closeness. It was intimate fellowship you were having with that person and it was important in that culture when you did that so when you ate with somebody you made that covenant the covenant of the salt salt was very valuable it was a very valuable thing that you were doing very important thing that you were doing so jesus here comes along and he says you're to be salt you're to be have peace with one another now every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt have salt in yourself as he says have peace with one another Now think with me, back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, it speaks specifically of that sacrifice that was to be offered to the Lord in chapter 2, the peace offering. And that offering was to, in verse 13 of Leviticus chapter 2, was to be salted. You were to put salt in the sacrifice. You were not to put leaven in the sacrifice because leaven speaks of what? It speaks of evil, doesn't it? It speaks of sin. Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthian church, as he was, he was addressing their sin that was in the church, he says, don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? It begins to spread. You need to purge out the leaven. So the sacrifice of Leviticus chapter 2 was not to have leaven, and also it was not to have honey. It was not to have honey, verse 11 of chapter 2. Now, why not honey? Because honey is sweet. Well, what's wrong with that, you might ask? Aren't we supposed to be sweet like honey? Aren't we supposed to be sweet towards each other? Why then would the sacrifice require that there be no honey? There was a reason why. Because honey under high pressure breaks down. It loses its sweetness. Honey cannot sustain high temperatures. It cannot hold up under the heat. And so too, in my attempt to try to be a really sweet guy, I'm going to be really sweet. I'll live at peace with everybody. I'm just going to get along with everybody. And, and the Lord is saying, listen, I don't want any human attempt at sweetness. You try to be sweet, you can refine your personality, read all the books about how, how to have this sweet personality. You might paste a smile on your face. But you watch what happens when things get hot in your life. And you're not going to be sweet anymore. And that sweetness begins to break down. The only way to have peace is to have salt. Jesus said, be salt and light. And the only way to be salt and light is that you're staying close to Christ and depending on Him. You abide in Christ day by day in His presence. And you allow Him to work that out in your life. But if you or I try to come up with some kind of attempt of our own efforts of honey, it won't work. It's Christ in us. And that's why it's important that we continue to abide in Christ on a daily basis. And if we don't, you're not going to have peace. And if you're not surrendered to the Lord and just relying on the Holy Spirit and working in your life, you're not going to be that salt or that light to others. Salt was something that was used as a preservative for for meat. It was used to stop the spread of infection. It it was used in, in different ways. It was to give flavor. 
You and I live in such a way that, that people look at our lives and they say, what is it that you have? There's a flavor that's there. Uh, I thirst for that. You eat salty chips, you get thirsty. I thirst for what you have. We as the churches, we praise, we stand for righteousness, we stop and preserve the spread of infectious you know, sin and, and just completely taken over. There's an important ministry in being salt and light, and it comes by abiding in Christ, not in our own efforts. So Jesus is saying here that you be salt and have peace with one another. So remember, this whole account opens a group of disciples arguing who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus gives us the key, the secret of being truly great, are these four principles. And what you and I are to do is to seek the Lord and pray about these things, having these things worked out in our lives. It's so different, as I mentioned, than what the world says about greatness. Jesus saying that the remedy is to have salt in yourselves. You begin with yourself, to deal with your own weaknesses, not with others. You cleanse your own life, not others. Start dealing drastically, radically, seriously with the things that are wrong in your own life. Cut those things out or else you're going to bring hurt and destruction into your life and the life of those that you love. The mark of greatness is to receive those in the body without respect of persons, to receive them, to build them up, their lives and strengthen them, and don't cause them to stumble. Handle with sensitivity. Don't bring offense to the littlest, the newest, the weakest of the babes. And you receive them and you love them. Living peaceably with all men. You do these four principles, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to rise to stature and greatness in the eyes of God, and you're going to be blessed. And so, Father, we thank you. And we thank you for these principles of greatness that are given to us in the kingdom that we don't always hear or think about. Father, it's my prayer that you've spoken to us very clearly this morning. And Father, I do want to, to pray for anybody that is here this morning that has never truly surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ, belongs to him. That he desires for you to be great in the kingdom, but first you must belong to the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it doesn't happen by just thinking you're hearing a Bible study or belonging to a church. or It comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if anyone is here out in the coffee shop that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you don't know. If your life was to end today, whether you go to heaven or not, you don't have that assurance that you're not sure, you think maybe you've been good, and none of those things will get you in. But it is the heart that says, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you're the Son of God who died for me, a sinner. And I can't save myself, no matter how good I think I might be or how bad that I've been. There is forgiveness by coming to you and recognizing you're the Son of God who died for me because you love me, Lord. And I want forgiveness of sin. And I want the hope of heaven and to come into the kingdom and then learn how to be great. But it begins by becoming a little one, by being born again by the Spirit of God. We want to give you that opportunity. If you've never done that before, if you've never come to Christ, He loves you. And He's the only one that can save you. No one else or nothing else. 
and you can pray in your heart, Jesus, I have sinned. I know that, that I have sinned. I'm a sinner. And I believe that you're the Son of God who died on Calvary's cross for my sins. Thank you. And that you do love me. And Jesus, forgive me my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you rose again from the grave. You're alive. And I believe you touched my heart this morning. And I come in faith, surrendering to you in faith my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer, Jesus. And if you prayed that simple prayer for the very first time, if you're in the sanctuary or out in a coffee shop, we've got guys that are out there that want to minister to you, just raise your hand. Anybody at all wants to give their life to Jesus Christ for the first time this morning?